Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is entitled, Party Bus Makes Room for Tweens by Tara Weiss. Then Joe Queenan has an article, The Many Reasons Not to Own a Dog. Michael Milken wrote an article, Another Medical Revolution is Underway. And then Greg Opelka's Rolex, the Trademark Watchdog. And then Bob Brody has an article, Why I Let My Granddaughter Four Lose. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Party Bus Makes Room for Tweens. Long associated with bachelor parties and pub crawls, the infamous party bus is getting a makeover. The built-in refrigerators are stocked with water and soda instead of alcohol. The destination is more likely to be an ice cream parlor than Atlantic City. And the stripper poles? Please. Those are now known as safety poles. Mark Vigianti, president and CEO of MNV Limousines, says tweens and teens now make up 10% of his business, up from just a couple outings a year in the past. I prefer the little kids since we don't have to worry about alcohol spilled over all the place, he said, based in the Long Island hammock of Comac, New York. They don't get out of control, dance on seats, or get sick in the vehicles. What remains the same for these young revelers is the club vibe. Samantha Zaccardi hosted part of her 14th birthday on a party bus to transfer 35 friends from her home in Tenafly, New Jersey, to dinner at Tao in Manhattan in October. She liked that on a party bus, friends could be together on the commute instead of riding in separate cars. A regular bus was another option, she said, but the party bus allowed guests to dance to the playlist she broadcast via Bluetooth on her mom's phone or chat in small groups in one of the restaurant-style booths. The low lighting, coupled with LED lights, lent the air of being at a downtown nightclub. The bus was the best part of the night, Ms. Zaccardi said. Her mom, Jennifer Zaccardi, said the kids would have happily skipped dinner in favor of remaining on the bus. They would have driven longer if we let them, she said. It would have been a lot cheaper driving them around for a few hours and getting McDonald's. Michael Farrar, owner of UltimatePartyBus.com in Palm Beach County, Florida, said bookings for tween birthdays have doubled to 20% in the past two years. Kids get bored of the same old thing and it becomes competitive with kids and parents, Mr. Farrar said. As for the poll, he tells kids that, just like the ones on the subway, it's for safety. Kids run right to the pole to start swinging around it, he said. Boys more than girls. Owners say they noticed the rise in younger clients when COVID-19 restrictions began lifting. 
It was a way to gather safely in small numbers since the parties were contained on a bus and hosts often asked guests to test before the party. Kids shared images and videos on social media which spread the word. That's how Rory Motherway got the idea to hold her joint 11th birthday celebration with friend Maddie Faber on a party bus in January. She saw a TikTok video of a teenager's celebration on one and brought the idea to a friend. We thought our moms wouldn't let us, Rory said. I thought it was over the top for a kid's birthday, said her mother, Sarah Motherway. Michelle Faber had a different concern. I was worried about the poll, she said. After exploring the idea and talking to a number of limo owners, the two Manhattan moms decided to use the owner's terminology, safety pole, and decorated it with crepe paper. The group of 13 kids and both moms started the night at a hibachi restaurant, followed by a two-and-a-half-hour drive around Manhattan. The partiers wore Mardi Gras beads, neon sunglasses, and light-up necklaces, while a machine periodically belched smoke from under the couch. The kids took turns swinging from the pole while the others line danced to a remix of Cotton Eye Joe. The stripper pole was a huge hit, Ms. Favor said. Peter Gay de Souza hosted 13 girls on a beautiful kicked-out party bus for her daughter Zoraya's surprise 11th birthday. As a party planner, Ms. de Souza said she tries to create an experience for clients and wanted to do the same for her daughter. Plus, she wanted a way to liven up the hour-long drive from her home in Coral Springs, Florida to brunch at the Upscale Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach. I heard about limos, but I had never heard of a party bus before, said Zariah. The bus was the party, said Ms. D'Souza. They danced and sang the entire way. Even the kids that were shy were dancing and singing. It was like karaoke on wheels. And now, The Many Reasons Not to Own a Dog by Joe Queenan. For as long as I can remember, friends and family members have been encouraging me to get a dog. Their motives are deeply suspect. I think they want me to get a dog mostly so that I will have mastered the arcane skills needed to walk their dogs while they are on vacation. But I was not put on this planet to walk dogs, and this is a situation that is never going to change. I visit my son twice a year, and he has two very nice dogs. The couple of weeks I spend frolicking with them is more than enough to satisfy my needs, I explained. I don't need a dog 52 weeks out of the year. Four weeks is plenty. But you seem to like dogs, they insist. You seem to enjoy throwing balls into ravines and swirling riptides and watching them fetch them. I like giraffes and snow leopards too, I reply, but I don't want them in my house either. Dog lovers are nothing if not persistent. They view my lack of passion for dogs as a sign of moral callousness. I am willing to admit that not being interested in dogs probably is a character defect. But it is a character defect I am glad to have. Oh, come on, dogs cheer you up and make even the gloomiest day seem bright. They bellow in one last, sadly misguided effort to change my way of thinking. 
I just got my rotator cuff repaired, I remind them. If a dog on a leash should go lunging after a squirrel or the DoorDash driver, it's going to wreck my shoulder for good. My logic is clearly irrefutable. Yet dog lovers retain a jaw-dropping ability to ignore unimpeachable evidence that dogs do not, in fact, improve your quality of life. Exhibit A. One of my friends recently tripped over her new puppy and ended up in the hospital with a badly gashed leg. Exhibit B. I twisted my knee when I made a lunge for that very same puppy as it was scurrying out the back door, presumably making a break for the Canadian border. Also, dogs are expensive. They constantly need tendon surgery or exotic medications or reprogramming for personality disorders such as lunging at strangers or snacking on $1,795 shoes. They don't appear to have any fashion sense whatsoever. They tear up flower beds and gnaw on furniture and growl at toddlers and howl for hours on end while their owners are attending a five-hour performance of Wagner's Wolkengrin. Dog lovers refuse to recognize that a large segment of the non-dog-loving population would prefer that they kept pythons or California condors as pets. Dogs cause bad blood with neighbors, make life miserable for mail carriers, and don't seem to understand that most of us actually Robin like Robin Redbreasts and do not want to see them torn to pieces in the art of recreational avicide dogs specialize in. Thankfully, in an unexpected development, I recently stumbled upon the perfect excuse to never get a dog. Trailblazing computer scientists at Newcastle University and the University of London have determined that popular pet-related apps may be exposing dog lovers to dire financial risk. Turns out that the apps used to keep track of a dog's whereabouts or monitor its heartbeat can easily be hacked, exposing pertinent log information and even revealing the pet owner's current whereabouts. As a result, I might go out for a walk and come back to find my house ransacked or my bank accounts plundered or my priceless Martin D28 guitar heisted by app-hacking thieves. In short, the danger inherent in operating any sort of digital doggy device provides me with the ultimate reason to never get a dog of my own or to take charge of anyone else's dog. The same goes for cats, ferrets, and geckos. A parakeet I might consider. Another medical revolution is underway by Michael Milken. Polio was such a threat in 1950s America that someone thought the need to build iron-lung hotels would bankrupt the nation. In 1987, Oprah Winfrey told her TV audience that one in five heterosexuals could be dead from AIDS in three years. Senior California officials in March 2020 warned that half the state's 39 million residents could be infected with COVID in two months and that 5 million needing hospitalization would overwhelm the fewer than 100,000 available hospital beds. We sometimes forget that, as recently as the 19th century, people suffered through gruesome surgeries without anesthesia 
and childbirth without antiseptic procedures. The first part of the 20th century saw only slow progress in clinical medicine. Medical research was sporadic, and one of the few bright spots was the advancement of public health, which saved millions of people through basic sanitation. Even by the early 1970s, when I began using my resources to support medical research, doctors for the most part still could only observe the human devastation caused by the most serious diseases. They had little in their arsenal to treat such complications. The situation began to improve only as research uncovered disease mechanisms at the genetic, molecular, and cellular levels. Science now allows us to respond to health crises with antibiotics, polio vaccines, statins, genome sequencing, immunotherapies, monoclonal antibodies, antiretroviral cocktails, robotic surgeries, advanced nutrition, powerful new diagnostic scans, focused ultrasound, artificial intelligence, CRISPR gene editing, and mRNA vaccines. The achievements of medicine over the past half century have been stunning. Heart disease cut in half, AIDS increasingly controlled, cancer deaths heading down, several hereditary defects corrected, COVID vaccines delivered in record time. 20 years ago, the idea of putting a live cell in a human, directing it to travel to a specific location, and having it do a specific task would have been considered impossible. Today it's reality, and hundreds of companies are working on cell therapy applications. That's only the beginning. As I note in my new book, Faster Cures, Accelerating the Future of Health, advancements arriving at an exponentially increasing rate lie ahead as new discoveries reach the clinic with breathtaking speed. We can now reasonably speculate about therapies that will give us the ability to clean tiny cancers from our bodies as routinely as dentists clean our teeth. We can look for the possibility of gaining immunity from dozens of viruses with a single vaccine and editing genes to eliminate many birth defects. We can picture growing new organs from patients' own cells and even slowing the aging process. The driving force behind this progress is the astounding advance of our ability to produce, manipulate, store, retrieve, and transmit data. Faster, cheaper, more communicable data have revolutionized medical research. No longer is a lone scientist working at a laboratory bench likely to produce medical breakthroughs. Science is now a team activity. In cancer studies, the primary investigator behind any one advance might rely on the specialized skills of a radiation oncologist, a disease-specific biologist, an evolutionary ecologist, a biophysicist, a geobiologist, and an evolutionary dynamics expert. Even game theorists can contribute by modeling the Darwinian rivalry by which cells compete to become a successful tumor. The, teammate of, the teamwork of such experts often takes place in multiple countries, but technology knits them together as a seamless creative unit. New computational tools are accelerating progress in every corner of medicine. 
Physicians can target cancers more precisely with the right drugs in the right amounts at the right time with fewer side effects because they can now sequence actual tumors. Scientific understanding of the immune system, blood components, and the microbiome has grown by orders of magnitude. Our increased ability to sequence gut microbes allows more precise nutrition. Meanwhile, the lead time for vaccine development is shrinking. What used to take years can be completed in days. By harnessing artificial intelligence, machine learning, and massive computational power, scientists can now design drugs from scratch inside a laboratory computer. Despite all this progress and exciting future prospects, such challenges as health equity remain. Those of us in the wealthier nations live years, often decades longer than the average African, Latin American, or South Asian. A study found that on a 20-minute ride from Midtown Manhattan to the South Bronx, neighborhood life expectancy by dec- declines by 10 years, six months for every minute on the train. The study goes on to say that between the Chicago Loop and the west side of the city, the difference is 16 years. Similarly, a National Institutes of Health found that in central Baltimore, a man can expect an average life of 63 years. Five miles away in the greater Roland Park, Poplar Hill neighborhood, it's 83. Even with access to the best medical care, too many people continue to destroy their health through neglect or abuse. That's why I felt compelled to include a chapter on prevention in my book. It's great when medical science develops a new cure. It's even better when we can prevent disease from occurring in the first place. As one pharmaceutical executive told me, the next great drugs will be prediction and prevention. The more we resolve to focus on such social determinants of health, the more we will reap the benefits of the amazing revolution in life sciences. And now Greg Opelka's Rolex, the trademark watchdog. What's in a name, Shakespeare's Juliet asks. For corporations hypervigilant about protecting their brands, the answer is plenty. Take Chipotle. Recently, the chain that serves Mexican fast food sued the health food restaurant chain Sweetgreen only to drop the suit a few days later. As reported in the journal, the dispute arose over Sweetgreen's new menu item called Chipotle Chicken Burrito Bowl. Unlike the biblical story, this David and Goliath story, Sweetgreen's market cap capitalization is less than 2% of Chipotle's, has a happy ending for both parties. Sweetgreen agreed to rename its new menu item, Chicken and Chipotle Pepper Bowl, and Chipotle withdrew its suit. Chipotle styles its restaurants Chipotle Mexican Grill, but it couldn't protect the lowercase common noun Chipotle, which refers to a smoke-dried, ripe jalapeno pepper. Corporations deal with trademark violations swiftly, even when they are innocuous. My friend found this out firsthand in 2009. My friend Patty owned a large dog she acquired for protection. 
In jest, she named him Rolex, her watchdog. That September, for her birthday, I surprised Patty with a gag gift. I purchased the domain name RolexTheWatchdog.com on GoDaddy and presented her with a certificate announcing the new URL. She was thrilled, and as she told me later, although I couldn't confirm this, so was Rolex. The dog, that is, not the company. A week later, I received an email from the legal counsel of Rolex SA ordering me to cease and desist from any use of the domain or face a lawsuit. I was surprised at both the rapidity of the timepiece maker's response and its concern over what was obviously an innocent private use of the company's name. If anything, I thought they would be happy to get a little free advertising. I capitulated and ceded the domain to Rolex. The lawyer who handled the case generously agreed to my request that Rolex repay my cost of registering the domain name for one year. Later that week, I sheepishly reported to Patty that her birthday present hadn't even lasted a month. After showing her the company's threatening email, I contemplated buying her Waldorf and Davis thewatchdog.com as a consolation prize, but it didn't have the same ring to it. Wilsdorf and Davis was the original name of the company, now known as Rolex, named in honor of its founders Alfred Davis and his brother-in-law Hans Wilsdorf. Whether it's a chili pepper or a timepiece, it's best to consider the trademark infringement possibilities before you take action. Otherwise, you could wind up with a tempest in a burrito bowl. Why I Let My Granddaughter Four Lose by Bob Brody Race me, four-year-old Lucia demands, so I do. Off my granddaughter sprints down the driveway, often giving her a head start, the front gate, our finish line. But soon I pull close. Here I come, I warn. I'm gonna win. No, she protests at the top of her lungs. No. But I win. I'm trying to teach her about competition. Decades ago, I raced my son, Michael, too, only occasionally letting him win. Then one summer day, on a beach in Long Island, Michael won for real, blowing my doors off. And one day, probably sooner rather than later, if only because I'm 71, Lucia will win for real, too. All my adult life, I've played sports with kids, from family members and neighbors to strangers. Baseball, basketball, football, soccer, tennis, track, you name it. I formed a philosophy about how to train kids in athletic competition. They should win some, but they should also lose some. In the interest of striking the right balance, I typically look to maintain a ratio of about 50-50. So, for example, I'll smack away an attempted layup or fling a fastball past the batter just to make a point. But a minute later, I may back off to allow a touchdown or a winning forehand down the line. The idea is for kids to taste both victory and defeat and then be free to decide which they like better. So it is with Lucia. If everything comes easy, she'll never be prepared to manage anything hard. 
granting losing hurts. I've never quite recovered from getting cut in tryouts for my 8th grade basketball team. But losing is also instructive and fortifying. Losing motivates you to bring out your best. Lucia should understand that nobody deserves an award simply for showing up, and nothing makes you want to win more than losing. I've failed over and over again in my life, Michael Jordan says in a commercial, and that is why I succeed. Sports is a school. It's curriculum a lesson in how we're always our own toughest competition. At its best, competition teaches cooperation and collaboration. Besides, all of life is a kind of race for a mate, a job, the next buck. The sooner we learn the stakes are Darwinian, the better we'll survive. A horse never runs so fast, Ovid wrote, as when he has other horses to catch up and outpace. Again, Lucia insists, race me again. So again, I race her. We dash down the street. I'm trailing by a yard, but again, I issue my threat. Here I come. I'm going to win. No, she gasps between breaths. I'm going to win. And then three-foot-tall Lucia shifts into a higher gear, inching ahead. She wins, smiling and laughing, the exertion leaving her cheeks flushed. I won, she screams. I got here first. I love the look in her eyes. See how good it feels, I ask her. Yes, she exclaims. But even though we seem finished for the day... She's just getting started. Again, she cries out, radiating the spirit of a champion. Race me again. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.